Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to share with you again another episode that we did on a different podcast. In fact, Carrie Baldwin and Dick Clark did an interview on the Mises Caucus podcast, and I listened to it. It's absolutely wonderful. It's one of my favorite interviews to listen to about the book that we've done so far. So we wanted to share that with you. So enjoy. All right. It's my pleasure to welcome Kerry Baldwin and Dick Clark to Decentralized Revolution. To get started, I'd like to hear from each of you how you became a libertarian, how you became a Christian, and, and how you came to be involved with uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute. And of course, ladies first. So we'll start with Kerry. <laughs> Um, thanks, Aaron. Well, I actually grew up in the church. I grew up in the, the Lutheran church, so I've sort of been Christian all my life. So that's a pretty easy answer. <laughs> but I became a libertarian in 2008 with the Ron Paul revolution. So, you know, that's a that's sort of a familiar story, I think. I was um, what you might consider a red-blooded Republican. I was very, very Republican. Came from a military family. I've served in the military myself. And so, you know, Ron Paul's position on foreign interventionism was sort of my last hurdle to get over. But yeah, that was sort of how I became a libertarian. I eventually found the Libertarian Christian Institute actually when it was still LCC, when it was just uh, Norman's blog. And so I followed that for, for many years. And was doing a blog of my own called Mere Liberty, which is mostly local sort of libertarian application to, to municipal politics. But yeah, I eventually branched out and started talking about more stuff and including abortion, which nobody likes to touch. And at some point, Doug Stewart found me and they invited me to become a contributor. Gosh, I think it was must have been 2017 or 2018, somewhere around there. So I've been with them ever since. Okay, great. Dick, what about you? Well, uh, like Carrie, I was raised in the church. I uh, was raised by two parents who actually met at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary down in New Orleans, New Orleans Baptist Theological. And I guess even in high school, I was already sort of a proto-libertarian, not fully formed, but had some impulses in that direction. And then I had uh, the blessing of meeting Bob Murphy we met in the summer of 2000 when I was an RA at a private dorm where the Mises Institute put up a bunch of summer research fellows and, and seminar students. And Bob basically just persuaded me that collateral damage and warfare is a violation of thou shalt not murder. And so I had previously been, you know, subscriber to Soldier of Fortune magazine. And I thought that the military track was the one that I wanted to go down because it seemed really cool. And I'd seen all the movies to prove it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a gun guy and everything, but it really shifted course for me because, you know, as Randolph Bourne said, war is the health of the state, right? And even if we go back to 1 Samuel 8, where the elders of Israel admit, really, we just want a leader to, you know, ride with us big and tall into battle, right? That, it's the same temptation. And once you get past that and give God your safety, 
all of a sudden this sort of mythology of the state that underpins it just fades away, or at least it did for me. So here I am 20 years later and still talking about it. Great. It's, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you both on. And uh, I'm a believer myself. So as I read the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, I tried to read it with the eyes of uh, someone who's not, you know, neither a believer nor a Christian or or someone who's one or not the other, right? So there's Mm -hmm. different permutations of that. And so I think a good way to maybe get into why you guys decided to write the book is to ask, I could see some Christians asking the question, why are you writing a book about politics when you should be evangelizing or building the church or giving to charity or something like that? Well, I think that false teaching or mistaken teaching, if we want to be kinder, especially when it comes to the victimization of others, can be such just a terrible distraction from the gospel message, right? Throughout the Bible, we're called to be just with regards to how we interact with others. And if we are outspoken in a belief that has to do with aggression towards others and accepting of that, I think it poisons the well. I think it makes it really hard to talk about the Prince of Peace if you're a warmonger, to be blunt. Uh, And so for me, it is part of the evangelism message. It's part of scripture teaching. It's part of what the church is supposed to do, which is hold people accountable to right teaching. So... Well, and I think too, you know, in the church, you get this left-right paradigm, this liberal and conservative paradigm, and both liberal and conservative Christians want to use the state in order to, you know, get the culture to come around to some ideas about what they, you know, believe we should be acting like. And it actually, it occurred to me that conservatives tend to want to use the state to get people, whether they're believers or not, to conform to the first great commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength and soul. And so you get a lot of these moralistic kinds of laws like, you know, you can't have, not only does the state have to govern marriage and marriage licenses, right, but the state can't allow for gay marriage or anything like that. And so they use, the conservatives really use the state to to get people to love God, which is quite frankly unbiblical. But liberal Christians do the same thing because they want to use the state to get people to be more charitable or to care more for the environment or, you know, and that's the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, why are we busy talking about politics as Christians in this book? Well, it's because you know, both sides of that paradigm are trying to use the state and use politics to get people to conform to behavior that is supposed to be all voluntary. Right. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to look at it. And I think that you're right that not only Christian churches support for war, but also kind of, you know, I, I kind of came to things from the from the right too and was a grew up in a fairly conservative church. And I think a lot of people look at the political involvement of people like, you know, that I grew up with, and they see just what Carrie was saying, you know, wanting to impose a a certain set of morality on them. And I think it really, it kind of blunts the message and the power uh, of the church, because it seems like we're just one of the many people who are competing for, for favors from the government. 
I think it shows a sort of impatience, you know, or sort of an unfaithful impatience, right? Like mm. God's not getting to this fast enough. So I've got to yep. go get vengeance against all those sinners for him. And mm-hmm. uh, that's not the way it works, right? Uh, God right. specifically owns that whole assignment. And and our job here is to be salt and light, not necessarily to be angels of death. That job's already filled, right? <laughs> so, Right, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how, you know, where the church started as to, you know, where it is now as far as its relationship to the state. And of course, the big event historically, I, I would think, would be Constantine. But before Constantine, especially, what, how did the church relate to the state and, and some of these bigger issues? Well, you know, I think that's that's a really interesting question because, and there, there's a book that I have, which is out of print, and I think it's an excellent book called The State in the New Testament by Oscar Kuhlman. And he's he was a uh, Lutheran theologian who lived at the time of Hitler. And he did a study of, you know, that exact question. And he points out that there was, a constant tension between the church and the state insofar as, you know, it's it's there, it, it exists, it's supposed to be fulfilling the role of civil justice. And towards that end, you know, you're, you're supposed to submit. But it also extends itself out beyond that role and tries to, you know, usurp positions that it doesn't have any authority. And, and to that degree, you're supposed to resist it. So there is sort of this constant tension, I think, between the church and the state. And Kuhlman even points out that, you know, the beast in Revelation is the state. So we have to sort of bear in mind what it is the state is, because it's, one, it's distinct from civil governance. And two, it's not something that we're supposed to be giving our allegiance to in the first place. Right. Dick, do you have something on that? Well, I... He's not a Christian author, but it reminds me of the famous quote from Nietzsche where the state's greatest lie is I, the state, am the people, mm. right? And and I see that act by Constantine as really using that sort of PR move, if you will, to good effect, right? Where all of a sudden you say, hey, all of you are going to be part of my regime. You're not going to be the persecuted. You're going to be in the driver's seat. And certainly there have been, you know, pious people in history who are in positions of authority, who we don't see how that corrupted them. Daniel is a really good example. Joseph is another example. Where Now, they were slaves. Uh, they didn't, you know, send their resume in someplace and, and get hired for the job there. Right. But mostly when we see people seeking power, it's very dangerous. And I think that Christians should be aware that it's a temptation for us, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I think you're right in that we can infer a lot of sort of skepticism and uh, a need to distance ourselves from the state in a lot of those stories like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and uh, Daniel, and, you know, what it says in, in Samuel and and uh, different things. But, you know, and wh- one of the, the way the format of the book is it's answering a lot of common questions. And one of the, the most common questions and or replies that I get, uh, and I'm sure you do too, is when we're, you know, when we're questioning the government uh, on something or really anything, we get, hey, what about Romans 13? Submit to the governing authorities. So that, you know, of course, that uh, that chapter is subject to a lot of debate. How do you resolve any? I don't think there's differences there, but how does how does Romans 13? 
sit and, and work along with the sort of uh, anti-statist strains in Christianity? Well, first off, uh, fair uh, warning. I don't think either of us was the principal author of <laughs> in the book on Romans 13. So I've been joking with folks that I give the book to, hey, if you found anything heretical, it was one of my co-authors that did right. it. <laughs> uh, but Norman, I believe, uh, you know, Dr. Horn was our principal author for that particular response, if my spreadsheet uh, is correct here. My short answer would be that, you know, Romans 12 ends with the discussion of how to deal with evil generally. And then Romans 13 gives very difficult instructions on how to deal with perhaps the most pervasive evil, you know, around the people that the letter was written to, right? The people in Rome, the Roman Christians. And so it's explaining how they react to this kind of persecution, how they react to these people that bear the sword and that don't just wave the sword around, but they really kill with it. They don't bear the sword in vain. They really are killers. And so I think that is uh, just a very radical message of how to be evangelists, even while there are people trying to kill you. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. And I think for me, from a reform perspective, I have to look at Romans 13 and say, well, if it's talking about God's ordination of civil governance or the state as being providential, then you run into this problem of God ordaining evil because the state does evil things. On the other hand, if Romans 13 is prescriptive and it's saying this is what civil governance is supposed to be, then we can actually look at Romans 13 and say the state is acting in in violation of Romans 13. And so we shouldn't be submitting to, to that sort of evil. So I think it's very important to understand what Romans 13 is talking about. If it's if it's providential, we're going to run into problems. If it's prescriptive, then then it clears things up and we're able to say, you know what, this is a violation. You know, what they're doing is a violation of God's will. We can't submit to it. Right. And uh, I, I think that, you know, libertarianism to me isn't a full set of beliefs about about life and, and, mm-hmm. and all that. And, and you guys get into that a little bit. But I think that sometimes people think that when, you know, libertarians tend to have answers for everything and opinions about everything. Do you think that sometimes other, that Christians see us as, hey, we know better than God how to, how to run things? And how, and how do we, how do we counter that? Well, I, I think that the quote made it into the book. If not, it was certainly part of our discussion. The, the wonderful last words in Bastiat's The Law, that says that liberty mm-hmm. is an acknowledgement of faith in God and his works. The fact that he has already made provision for how we can make other people better off and make ourselves better off and leave an inheritance for our grandchildren and all these wonderful things that a righteous person is supposed to do that aren't purely just about being a soldier for the kingdom, right? They're sort of the the incidentals of being a living creature that is trying to provide for your son and, you know, give him a loaf of bread and not a stone, right? And so uh, I, I think that that comes through a little bit. And certainly there are a lot of libertarians who get trapped and they think that we have to have the answer for how every single problem will be sorted out. And I try to warn other libertarians, boy, that's the central planners problem. And we're not central Mm -hmm. planners, right? There are going to be specialists in narrow little bands of human knowledge. And no one person knows how that whole machine comes together. That's the beauty of the market is there this emergent order. And there's this coordination with people who don't know how all the other parts of the machine work. And it's the central planners who have to know everything. So don't fall for that. (laughs) Yep. 
Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's really easy. I mean, from a lot of the criticism that I get from Christians about libertarianism is, you know, well, what about whatever the environment, abortion, gay marriage, you know, whatever their, their pet issue is. And, you know, it's as if they're saying, well, there's a societal need. Shouldn't the state do something about that? And I think that the Christian libertarian response is to say, yes, there are societal needs. No, that doesn't mean that the state necessarily should handle that. And so we're not saying, you know, often the, the criticism is, well, you don't want anything done. And of course, there's that other, that other famous quote from, from Bastia saying that, you know, the socialist's criticism of us is that if we don't want the state doing something, then we must not want it done at all. And we're saying, no, God created the world to be ordered and we should allow that to take place. Like that order is is inherent. And when we start trying to intervene in it, that's that's when it becomes disordered. Yeah. And one thing that uh, I, I'm always kind of amazed at is, you know, we as Christians, we serve the Prince of Peace. We're supposed to treat our neighbor as ourselves. But when I get into, and I don't go around picking fights and debates on this, but when I do, it's amazing how people Christians are always looking for, hey, when do we get to use violence to solve problems? How did that mindset come about in the church? And and it's reflected in, you know, I think that most, I, I don't know about the numbers, but I know from sort of conservative Christianity that, you know, support for the military and for, you know, the police and, and just about anything they do is pretty strong. So where does that come from? Well, you know, I I would have to guess at this, but I think that it, you know, there's probably a mixture between constitutionalism and patriotism and, you know, the idea that we fought this, this revolution, right, this, this war for independence, and that the result was, in part, you know, one of the results was religious freedom, and that that's a cornerstone of America, and that the only way that we can really defend religious freedom is with violence. And so we need the military and we need all of these, you know, these violent mechanisms in order to protect that. And there's also probably something in there that has to do with just war theory, although I'm not sure that today's Christians really think that deeply about it. But yeah, I think a lot of folks are just operating under the assumption that, hey, there's just a few ways you can kill somebody and it not be the kind of killing that the that the Ten Commandments are are prohibiting, right? And mm-hmm. if it's in self-defense or if it's in war or if the government says this is a person that ought to be killed through some kind of process that doesn't look like a you know kangaroo court, right? And so, I mean, I think most people just sort of walk around with that in their pocket that, okay, that's the short list. And if mm-hmm. it's off that list, you're a bad guy. And if it's on that list, maybe you're not, right? And and I, I certainly believe in self-defense. Uh, I don't believe in those other uh, instances where we kill people because the government says so. And for me, that is where we have to emphasize with other believers that, look, this isn't just about, you know, picking the color of the wallpaper. This is a question of should we obey God or men? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if God tells us that certain action is, is foreclosed to us, it's just not an avenue available for the pursuit of whatever, you know, ends we're seeking, well, that's just not on the list of things that I can do, right? I mean, I, I can't do an evil act hoping that some good may come of it, right? I, I have to analyze my means and make sure that I'm not 
engaging in injustice uh, against others, regardless of whether my end is noble or not. Of course, that's something that matters too. But that, that's what I try to remind other believers about is, look, we have to be careful to not just seek things that Christians care about, but to go about them in ways that Christ would, uh, would be glorified in uh, and not be shamed by our actions. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times Christians are skeptical of, they're nervous about a lack of order and justice in society. You know, the, you hear people equate libertarianism with lawlessness and all that. And of course, you know, if you look into libertarian theory at all, you see kind of how that uh, order and uh, justice can be provided outside or with a, a much you know, with a greatly reduced state. So how did you guys deal with those issues? Uh, several times in the book, you there is uh, examples of how this order originates without the state. Well, we talk about, first of all, as Christians, we believe that God designed the rules, right? Justice is an immutable, you know, uh, created order that is sort of the framework that we live in. Uh, and so, that's the first part of why Christians should even care, because it's not just a short list that's in, you know, uh, 10 bullet points in Exodus. There, there are many, many different references to honest weights and measures and not withholding the wage from the, the worker after he's been promised it and so on. And so it's, it's very clear that I'm supposed to be seeking justice as it relates to other people as part of my, uh, my Christian walk. And so that impulse is good. And then the question is, yeah, how do I achieve that? And so we talk a little bit about private market mechanisms that might be useful for security services, dispute resolution. Uh, I wrote one of the answers that has to do with that and how even in our statist context, we have a whole massive private arbitration, mediation, negotiation, dispute resolution market, right, that exists even in spite of the entrenchment of the sort of state monopoly you know, in uh, buck stops here sort of justice, right, where the courts can ultimately send guys with guns to enforce their edicts. But uh, arbitration is already very common, even when the other way is more subsidized, right? And so I, I think that that is a good proof of concept. Again, I don't want to get trapped in this book or anywhere else saying, hey, I've got the, the final answer on how this thing is going to be tooled up forevermore in the future, because markets are dynamic and people do invent better mousetraps. But we can see that even, you know, ancient Israel, there was a, a statelessness for the first third of Israel's history where God did make provision for things, even when there weren't rulers sort of keeping a thumb on people. Well, and one question that I like to ask people is, is God the, the creator of order or chaos? And I don't know if you've heard uh, Lee Skolin. She's she's a Chinese defector. She did an interview with Free the People at one point, and she points out that the Chinese Communist Party has this idea that the natural order is chaotic and that it's the role of the state to bring order. And that's not too far from some Christians who believe that the state is there to order nature. But we have to ask this question, did God create chaos or order? And we say that God created order. And certainly human involvement can make it distorted because we're sinners and we live in a fallen world. But, you know, the Christian libertarian view is that 
if we can observe the natural order and observe that there are these patterns where we can see how it is ordered and not chaotic, then we should follow those patterns instead of trying to inject our own ideas about order into it, because that's where you get this central planning and this this communistic idea that it's our job to create order where God failed. And that's not that's not a Christian thought. So, you know, we should align ourselves with the natural order as opposed to thinking that we're going to fix something that God didn't do correctly. Yep. Let's get into the issue of uh, vice. Um, I think, you know, Lysander Spooner, I don't know if it was an essay entitled, you know, vices are not crimes, you know, drawing a distinction between the two. A common objection to the libertarian approach to, you know, things like prostitution, drug abuse, all kinds of other things is these things are obviously wrong. As Christians, we can all agree that this is wrong. So what purpose can possibly be served by not trying to stamp that out for the good of the people involved? And uh, how do you respond to that? Well, the Spooner essay, of course, uh, distinguishes the two categories of behavior by saying that you know, crime is is uh, when I injure somebody else, and vice is when I injure myself. And so, I don't think Jesus was a pacifist, but certainly he was not a violent person, right? And of course, uh, we know that people who are quick to anger, who do give in to temptations to be violent, were warned about people like that. They're not allowed to be in church leadership positions. It's a character defect to tend towards violence too quickly, for sure. And so, as you mentioned earlier, libertarianism is not a fully-fledged moral theory of every single decision you're going to make in your life. It just deals with this one category of decision. When is it okay to use force, you know, in a given circumstance? And for Christians, that's a very small part of the field of decisions that we have to make about how to be Christ-like in our daily lives. It's not just about who we use force against. But when it comes to dealing with vice, I think that using force against somebody who hasn't, you know, violated the rights of another person, it really clouds the issue and it makes it difficult to help that person in any case. And by the way, it disregards the fact that really as Christians, we ought to believe this is a sin problem, right? This is about the fact that sin is pervasive in the world and people are trapped by different sorts of sin, depending on, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and the sort of temptation they tend to fall into and what's hard uh, in their life that, that may be a challenge. Uh, and so with prostitution, you know, our answer would never be, oh, yeah, some Christians should be prostitutes. And we certainly don't say that in the book. <laughs> but we don't think that using violence against people who engage in that sort of behavior helps advance the kingdom. Well, and and I wrote the question on prostitution. And, you know, one of the things that really changed my mind about prostitution and whether or not it should be legal is the fact that prostitution is one thing and women who choose prostitution are usually in a desperate situation. And those desperate situations are cultural or social or, you know, anything but a criminal thing. But then you also have sex trafficking and sex trafficking gets mixed up with prostitution. And so with prostitution being illegal, it's actually harming women because it it allows this this black market, if you will, for, for sex trafficking. And so women are harmed by the fact that it's illegal. And when those women are trying to get out of 
prostitution or get out of that world, they're inevitably, you know, clamped down on by by law enforcement or even exploited in order to, you know, find the people who were, you know, who are their 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 pimps or whatever. So all it does when we when we criminalize the vice, all it does is harm the person who has the vice to begin with or is stuck in a desperate situation and it doesn't allow us to actually help them out of it because now we have to use sword power to deal with it. And I think as Christians we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe that using sword power against prostitutes or against drug users or against people who are seeking suicide, if that's the way that God wants us handling those things. Like, yes, we need to handle them. No, we don't necessarily have to handle it through the state or sword power. Yeah. um, Another issue that animates a lot of Christian objections to libertarianism is, of course, abortion. And that was kind of one of my, you know, last things too. I thought, you know, we have to have a state if only to prevent abortion. And my thinking began to change on that when I realized that the Republican Party really has no interest in actually overturning Roe versus Wade because they, I think they use it as a fundraising issue and a, and a get out the vote type of thing. But, you know, obviously as Christians, I think we see abortion as wrong. And how do we, should the state get involved in it now and uh, how would abortion be governed in the, in the absence of the state? And of course, Carrie, uh, I, I saw your talk, your debate with Walter Block. So you're the expert on this. So let's, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, abortion is such a tough issue because both sides, both the, con- what I call conventional pro-lifers and pro-choicers, they both compromise rights, right? The pro-life side compromises the rights of women in favor of the fetus. And then the pro-choice view compromises the rights of the fetus in favor of the woman. And, you know, the libertarian view and what Murray Rothbard said is that property rights disambiguate human rights. And if that's true, then we should be able to disambiguate the rights issues between the mother and the fetus. So to what degree should the state be involved? Well, the question that I constantly pose to pro-lifers is, what is your goal in ending abortion or legally ending abortion? Like, do you just want to prosecute women? And some of them genuinely do. They just want to prosecute women. And But more people, I think, want to actually end the practice voluntarily. And so if we're going to actually end it voluntarily, I think that we need to take seriously sort of the economic aspect of it, right? The praxeological aspect. Why do women make this choice to begin with and look at it from that point of view? One of the things that I do in the book is I sort of outline, you know, how how we deal with a woman who aborts or an abortionist, whether it's legal or illegal to have an abortion, right? And my answer is always to use the market first, right? If if we have a completely unregulated market, then that means that Planned Parenthood actually has to compete, right? They're getting subsidies from the government. They're getting the benefit of regulations that protect them. We have more 
crisis pregnancy centers in America than we do abortion clinics. And the number of abortions that are occurring today are below what they were before Roe v. Wade was, was even decided. So if we actually had an unregulated market, we could compete and, and actually help women make a voluntary choice, life-affirming choice, right? Whatever that is. And wherever the state is involved, that's going to also involve all of these classical liberal principles that libertarians adhere to, which is, you know, a presumption of innocence and being secure in your person and property and, and those sorts of things. Because as it stands right now, we don't have those things. The drug war destroyed those, those ideas. And, you know, what we don't want is to have somebody come along and, and become suspicious of just miscarriage, right? Because there's not, from, from, from an outside perspective, there's not much difference. If you're looking at the situation from the outside, there's not much difference on the outside between a miscarriage and abortion, at least the way it looks, right? What was the impetus for that is certainly different, right? You know, in the case of an, an abortion, you took a pill in order to expel a you know your your unborn baby but you know what we don't want is to make all women suspect and miscarriage is a very very common thing it's more common than people realize and there are many women who are in an emotional state when they go through a miscarriage and even will blame themselves for it that is not a person that we should be then having you know, police officers bearing down on her, accusing her of actually aborting her baby. That's just a nightmare situation. So, you know, even in a libertarian system where abortion is illegal, right, you'd better have evidence if you're going to charge a woman with abortion. And she is presumed innocent, and you can't just search her body, you know, in order to find the evidence. And it becomes the difficult thing that it should be. But more importantly is we get to use the free market, an unregulated market, to come up with cheaper, safer, and more life-affirming options for women, which are, I mean, they're myriad, even things that are seemingly unrelated, like, you know, for me personally, as a single mom, what makes it possible for me to homeschool my kids at home is cheap computers so that they can have access to a computer at home. That's even something that allows a woman to make life-affirming options. If she feels like she can actually do it, she'll keep her baby. And that's what the, the data suggests. I, I love how you handled that in the book, saying, hey, we need to look to the free market first for solutions. One thing that I've always kind of uh, advocated, and I've actually kind of made some headway with uh, people on it, and it sounds pretty radical at first, is shouldn't a woman who, you know, is maybe considering abortion, does she have the right to sell parental rights to the child to someone? <clears throat> and, you know, that would give her an incentive to stay healthy and, and things like that. Is that sort of thing permissible for a Christian libertarian order? What do you mean? Do you mean like an adoption or yeah. actually? Okay. Right. Yeah. Basically yeah. agreeing ahead of time for, um, for an agreed upon fee that when the baby is born, yeah. I, I will give up my rights and transfer the rights that I have uh, of stewardship over the baby 
to whomever wants to adopt. Yeah, well, I think that that is the actual, you know, logical solution, right? Because as a parent, we do have obligations to, you know, I would say that the the bare minimum legal obligations that we have to our children are to provide food, shelter, and protection. And I would even say that that child is owed that. And so, you know, if you have an unplanned pregnancy, mm-hmm. you're in a position where you can choose who's going to parent your child. You can screen them. You can you can also say, okay, you know, this is what you're providing them. You can absolutely, I think you draw that up in a contract. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, and if I could interject, you know, Rothbard, though we celebrate almost all of his work, I think this is an issue that he was weak on. In Ethics of Liberty, he talks about the rights of children, and I think he misses the mark there mm-hmm. uh, about whether parents owe duties to their children. And I think Block makes the same error in some respects. Block's theory of abortion is what he calls evictionism and the idea that, hey, I'm the property owner. What I say goes, if I want to kick somebody, you know, you know, say, hey, you kid, get off my yard, so to speak, <laughs> but in the uterine sense, then somehow that should be permissible. And to me, the obvious response is, you know, we as libertarians believe in consent, but you don't have to you know, formally consent to the natural consequences of your conduct and for being responsible right. for them. So, you know, it's not like this kid is a stowaway and now I'm going to throw him off the ship because he stowed away. He's a stowaway that you put there. <laughs> and right. so you have, by your own conduct, voluntarily assumed a duty of care. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It was from your own freely chosen actions, except for in the exceedingly rare case, thankfully rare, uh, of involuntary sex or rape leading to, to pregnancy. It happens, but of course, that's not most of the abortion cases that we're talking about. It's not, not probably a relevant issue to most people making this decision. And so I think that Walter, I love him, bless his heart. He's a wonderful libertarian thinker, but he's a guy who believes in voluntary slavery contracts and specific performance of them. So if anybody should believe in this idea that, hey, you can take actions that bind you in the future and cause you to be obligated personally to another person, it would be consistent for him to be that person and say, no, you know, once I take this conduct, puts that person in position of peril, now I have a duty that springs from my from my action there. So I, I want to get Walter in a room again uh, sometime and try to get him to submit on this point. But no, I, I think Kerry points out uh, in an excellent way the practical concerns that we just... You know, a society that, you know, has an absolute forcible prohibition on abortion that's invasive enough to catch every case, you've gotten to a police state, right? And there's so many other problems and other violations of justice that you've really thrown the baby out with the bathwater to use a really bad pun. Yeah. Uh, And one thing I actually, I do kind of like a lot of Walter Block's argument, uh, especially the part you know, he talks about, you know, as technology gets better, eventually we'll be able to transplant uh, a fetus either to another mother or to, a you know, some sort of incubator uh, or whatever. And so I think his position is, is if the baby can survive in a transfer like that, that, that you don't have the, the right to kill the baby in order to evict him or her. But I, the killing I, would I, just be incidental. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I think you're right it, that it ignores the proportionality. You mentioned, you know, kids in the yard. You know, I ha- occasionally have some kids who cut through my yard and I don't care. But if I did care, I would not be justified in sitting 
in this window with a rifle. And as soon as the, you know, the foot stepped onto my grass, taking him out because, you know, I should do everything I can to prevent, if I want to protect my property, everything, you know, start with the least harmful solution. And if you get resistance, then, you know, if it comes to the point where the kid draws a gun on me, then of course, you know, so I, I think Block, I think you're right, leaves out that proportionality and uh, in that argument, especially. Yeah. So. Well, and I want to I want to say something about rape for a second, because Glock especially depends heavily on on rape for his his reasoning. And one thing that I alluded to in the debate with him is that if we absolutize fetal rights, then we absolutize women's rights. And like, as it stands right now, we actually don't know legally what rape is. We call it sex without consent. But if it's merely sex without consent, then it's even viewed as sort of a a minor assault issue. Like it is assault, but it's not like the worst crime ever. But if we actually absolutize fetal rights, then rape becomes the most egregious crime against another human being. Because this is this is not just taking away, this isn't just non-consensual sex. It's taking away the woman's choice to choose whether or not to use her body in that way. And it's putting on her that responsibility to at least find new parents for that child. So rape, I think, if if we use property rights the way Rothbard talks about it, and we acknowledge the rights of the fetus from the moment conception is complete, then we can actually bring better justice to women regarding this, this issue than we've ever done in, in history. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get over to like uh, economics, both the left and the right have, you know, within the church have uh, objections to the free market. I actually have a couple of relatives who are believers who, you know, they're, they're big supporters of Andrew Yang now because they, they see the uh, UBI as being something that, you know, as it stands now, your worth in society is only defined by, you know, your ability to produce. And this would solve that. And I, I've had a kind of a hard time responding to that argument. But let's go back a second and and talk about the, you know, I think we're all propertarians, I think that capitalism, uh, why isn't capitalism, free market capitalism at odds with the Bible? Well, I mean, scripture actually, and I'm, I'm forgetting the scripture reference, but we put it in the book. Um, yeah, it's in there. Yeah. Scripture actually says that you can own property and do with it what you want, right? That's in scripture, but it also says, to be honest, you know, the honest weights and measures that Dick referred to. And Charity is is something that's described as, you know, you give it joyfully. That's not having it taken from you, right? So there's definitely a sense in scripture that you have these interactions with the poor and you help them, but it's all voluntary. Anything like, you know, UBI or socialism, even sort of this, this mixed economy, which is, you know, what we we have, which is capitalism mixed with socialism to you know, more or less, all that is, is taking away your choice in how you spend your money. And that hurts the poor the most. Like if our concern is the poor, socialism hurts the poor the most. And it's, it's one thing that I've 
really harped on as a single mom because I'm, you know, considered low income, I would throw away all of those those benefits entitlements that I can get as a single mom if I got the free market tomorrow. Because that's going to provide me way more security than, you know, than a mixed or a socialist economy ever will. Yeah. And and just from a Christian principles standpoint, I love the quote that's been circulating from the late great Walter Williams, who we just lost recently, mm. but uh, I've seen memes kicking around with his picture and this wonderful quote of his where he said, prior to capitalism, the way people amassed great wealth was by looting, plundering, and enslaving their fellow man. Capitalism made it possible to become wealthy by serving your fellow man. Yes. And mm-hmm. the idea that service bears fruit should be something that Christians are open to hearing, right? And yeah. the fact that property is a tool or money is a tool for uh, facilitating that service isn't something that Christians ought to be hostile to. It's not that we love money, but we recognize the utility of money, right? And, and of course, if we're nerds about Austrian economics, uh, we, we might talk about this being the way that we can engage in uh, economic calculation at all, right, is with money prices and with people sort of deciding for themselves how much they're willing to pay for something and others deciding whether it's worth it to sell it at that, right? And so that's that's how we can know a lot more about how to plug our talents and our resources in to serve the needs of others. Uh, and ultimately, that's beneficial uh, in a not purely just a utilitarian sense of, hey, I've got bread to eat, but also it it causes us to depend on each other in a positive way. And it reinforces the idea that God told us without giving the justification right there in the Ten Commandments, but thou shalt not steal, right? Theft implies that property exists. And so Mm -hmm. thou shalt not steal just in a single statement clearly ratifies the the institution of property as something that God sets out as part of his larger picture for how we interact with each other is recognizing where my stuff ends and your stuff begins and not encroaching. But uh, Acts chapter two, I think it is, uh, that proves the church, the early church was socialist, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I went to, I went to lunch with my pastor a couple of weeks ago and he paid. Uh, and, and so therefore mm-hmm. pastors should always pay for everybody in the congregation's lunch. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think the point, I think it's made in the book is they all did that, you know, they, they did it voluntarily. They did it voluntarily and they, didn't they sell their possessions on the open market to get money to then give to the poor and to support the church. And to me, that that's kind of the answer I think I want to get toward is under free market capitalism, you're free to chase money if you want. You're yeah. free to do the opposite. You're free to have a commune. You're free to start a, a not-for-profit, something like that. So free market capitalism does not impose on people a certain attitude toward issues like money and greed and things like that. Well, scripture never, never shows us that um, Paul or Peter or any of any of the other Christians in scripture went to Rome and demanded that, that the Senate, you know, provide these, these programs, right? That never happened. And actually when, when the church finally did become intermingled with the government, you got the problem with the Roman Catholic church and I mean, I don't want to bag on Catholics, but that was historically that became a problem where the church, you know, where the corporate church was intertwined with the state. And so I I think that, you know, no matter what, what we're looking at in scriptures, 
is all voluntary. Yes, we help the poor. Yes, we serve our fellow man, but we're also image bearers of God. We're given free, you know, free will and we have individual talents that God gave us and we should use them in the ways that that we see fit, right? Nobody else can can make that determination for us. Yeah. And and I I love that, you know, that passage from Acts, it shows a radical hospitality, I think. It shows uh, radical fellowship where I, I love my brother or sister in Christ so much that, you know, my my place is just as good a place for them to lay down their head at night as some other place, right? And to me, that's what that talks about. And as mm-hmm. you point out, it doesn't say, hey, and the congregation put all their property in common and went down to the Roman treasury, right? It doesn't say mm-hmm. that. Uh, the instrumentality there is the church. And in fact, I think that's a a radical message that's contrary to the welfare state because it tells us that the church is the conduit for benevolence and the church is the conduit for, you know, in other passages, relief of widows, right? Uh, for caring for the fatherless. And that is a responsibility that the church, unfortunately, has largely abdicated. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it used to be that almost everybody who was not able to pay for their own medical care was going to receive charity care through a religious institution uh, or a fraternal institution uh, that had a charitable outlet in the form of a hospital, like we think of the Shriners, right? And so uh, the fact that the bureaucratic state and the welfare state have beat back those naturally developed voluntary institutions that are all about saying, hey, let's provide for others and instead have replaced it with entitlement. It's just a very a great perversion of what benevolence ought to be. And it's making people feel entitled to what are, are others instead of just feeling blessed when others use their resources to their benefit. Yeah. Well, Go ahead, Carrie. I think I, I was just going to say, if you guys haven't, I highly recommend reading Rose Wilder Lane's Give Me Liberty because the first couple of chapters, um, and I had started to narrate this with my podcast, but I haven't finished it yet. The first couple of chapters, she's interviewing these Russians who who live in a socialist community, but it's a voluntary socialist community. And their big complaint is about state socialism and how it's coming in and it's taking away their ability to actually make these decisions as a community. But when they describing how they live, it's very much voluntary. So even if you're a Christian who kind of likes the idea of, of you know, more community involvement, the whole point of the libertarian perspective is that it's voluntary, that the state isn't there centrally planning it and intervening with it. And that was their their big complaint in Rose's uh, pamphlet there. Yep. Uh, one thing I, I know that was a goal for you two and the other two authors of the book was to, you know, liber- every libertarian has a podcast uh, and it's easy to get on those. I think you guys were looking to promote the book in non-libertarian outlets. Have you guys had success doing that yet? And how's that going? Well, I was able to get on uh, Presbycast, uh, which is uh, obviously a Presbyterian podcast. Um, and so I got to talk about it on there, which was which was wonderful. But yeah, I haven't, we've, we've got some other podcasts that you know we're hoping to get on, but I haven't anyways been on any non-libertarian ones. Yeah, I think Doug is our master spreadsheet uh, coordinator on that front. And uh, sorry, we can't pull him out of your pocket to answer that question for you. Oh, no, that's okay. Uh, I guess maybe let's, uh, I had a follow-up to that, is what have been the most effective arguments against Christians 
looking favorably on on libertarianism for you what are, what are the biggest obstacles and the and the best reasoning that you've heard that uh that challenge uh what you believe Ooh, that's a good question you know I'm not so sure that I've run into good reasoning as I have run into just assumptions that Christians have made about, you know, what civil governance is, what the state is, uh, what does it mean that God ordained that, you know, so I think actually the biggest hurdles have to do with, you know, making sure that we're using the same definitions and not talking past one another, but also even talking about anarchism, right? That's, that's sort of the, the untouchable topic. It's like, oh, you want chaos and lawlessness. Well, no, let me explain to you what I mean by that. And sometimes that can be so far out there outside their Overton window that, you know, they, they won't hear it. So, you know, my experience has been sort of battling against that, that Overton window or assumptions about what these terms mean, or just the idea that, even the idea that as libertarians, we're just presenting another partisan view, right? right. Yeah, I, I think that for me, there's just a whole lot of reluctance on the part of, of folks that I talk to, to want to believe that an enterprise that they may take pride in, or that maybe they have a family member who's employed by it, that that could be fundamentally rotten and useless, mm. something that should be done away with, right? I mean, and, and understand, I work around a state legislature, and interact with people every single day who work for the state. And so there's a whole lot of wishful thinking or aspirational thinking, uh, right, about what the mission of the state is and what it can achieve and what people believe that they are trying to achieve through that instrumentality. And of course, uh, as libertarians, we're not saying that every single person who works for the state is just a sociopathic monster who's looking around for somebody to take a bite out of, right? I mean, Part of the problem, as identified by Hannah Arendt when she was analyzing, you know, the the Nazis, is the banality of evil, right? The fact that Mm -hmm. actually the evils of bureaucracy very often are just boring. They're just Mm -hmm. rote. You know, it gets to the point where you can't even see the the forest for the trees, right? You just just sort of forget that there's this moral component to it and become deadened to it. And frankly, that should ring true for believers who understand that persistent habitual sin can can callous our hearts right can can make us insensitive to god's prompting and and make us really just dead to justice and that's something i think that the state does it seduces people into it but you don't have to be a believer to recognize the truth of that right if you look at Ludwig von mises's work on bureaucracy and just the fact that the state sets up certain institutional incentives and then the actors within that bureaucracy respond uh, and so Part of this challenge is helping people understand that we're not saying that their cousin who's a game and parks, you know, officer is like a monster. It's just to say, look, there's a better way of doing this. And he's right. put in positions we don't want any good person to be put into. And so we should want this other provision uh, for that social need. Yeah. We hear the term culture war a lot. And of course, we you know, had a really contentious election where it seems that the the left right divide is is just getting so much worse as that culture war happens where do you see the churches in how is that going to affect the church in the coming years um especially you know i, I think of isn't there I, I think even in in canada there are some pastors who have 
you know, been fined or, or gone to jail for speaking out against homosexuality or something like that. Do you see the culture war as bringing some attacks on the church? I think it's very possible that what the culture war is bringing as far as attacks is it's inviting the church to try and resolve those problems the way the state is trying to resolve those problems. And the state is not resolving those problems and is making it worse. And if the church mimics that, then it's it's going to be a problem there as well. You know, I think regardless of the cultural issue that that is sort of at stake, we need to go back and say, how are we supposed to deal with this as Christians? How are we supposed to be salt and light? Do we really have to model the sort of parliamentary procedural thing that the state is doing? You know, no, we don't, we don't have to do it the way the state is doing it. And if we do it that way, then we are going to fail just like the state is failing. Yeah. And I'll tell you that in some ways the church institutionally is under attack, right? And uh, certainly churches have different levels of exposure. Uh, And one example just might be, you know, a church that's pretty big scale, you know, thousands of people and has many employees there are more openings where that church can be vulnerable to a legal attack because of some kind of employment discrimination, you know, where maybe they don't keep a, a close watch on who's cleaning the sanctuary. And then all of a sudden they do. And now somebody says, hey, I got fired because of this, you know, forbidden protected status that the local municipality or the state or the federal government says isn't a, a legal reason for an employment consequence like that. Another one just has to do with marriage and whether or not uh, ministers could ever be compelled to participate in a marriage that does not pass muster with their belief system, right, with their principles. And I have counseled uh, some pastors about that and just sort of maybe, I'm not sure if they've gotten any new conclusions, but I know there's been been room for uh, rumination that, hey, you know, if it comes down to it, do I care more about the legal effect of, of the ceremony here or my spiritual responsibility? And I think there are some pastors out there who, who are considering the possibility of, you know, we'll, we'll carry out a religious service here. If you want you know, state recognition, go down to the justice of the peace and let that be done by a civil magistrate where I'm not part of that. So maybe it turns that way where some people right now that sign government documents in a ministerial capacity wouldn't do that anymore. Uh, we're not there yet, I don't think, but. That's what my wife and I did when we got married four years ago. We uh, got married uh, without a license uh, from a pastor who was actually a Misesian libertarian. And uh, nice. uh, so then we went on our honeymoon and then we went to the courthouse wearing our wet wedding rings and, and got, the, got the marriage license then. So <laughs> why don't we tell people where they can get the book, what formats they can get it in, uh, how they can engage with this I really recommend the book. It's it's not very long at all. And for someone who's not a nerd like us who, you know, will read uh, big, huge books by Mises or Rothbard, it, it's really good for someone who is maybe not that interested in politics or, or curious about uh, uh, liberty. So it's a great gift uh, to give people. I don't know if I'd give it as a Christmas gift, uh, but uh, that, that's uh, not very festive. But uh, where can people get the book and what formats is it in? So I think the easiest way to find it is to go to faithseekingfreedom.com. 
but it's, you know, it's orderable through Amazon. You can get it in Kindle format or paperback. Um, I believe the paperback is $11.99. And uh, the Kindle, is that still, what, $2.99? As of a few days ago, uh, we're recording on December 8th. I I think it was, I saw it a couple of days ago. I think it still was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've had Christian friends read it and I've had non-Christian friends read it and both have really appreciated it. In fact, I think it's very helpful for non-Christians who have sort of, non-Christian libertarians who have sort of gotten this idea that it's a contradiction to be a Christian and a libertarian, you know, because I think all of us, all of the authors are taking a Misesian or Rothbardian view of libertarianism. So yeah, I definitely recommend it for, you know, whether you're Christian or or not. Yeah, my hope, you know, is first off that, Christians would not see their their ministry compromised by being statists or being cheerleaders for statism, uh, right? But also, I do want to get rid of the distraction that statism can pose to those non-believers who, yeah, might be libertarians, might say, hey, this really seems like the way justice ought to work. Why don't Christians believe this? And I want to tell them, hey, some of us do. And, and in fact, I think this is what aligns best with Christian thinking, Uh and of course, that's the byline at the Libertarian Christian Institute is that, you know, libertarianism is the proper expression of Christian political thought. And uh, how do how do people engage with the LCI? What's the web address? Uh, LibertarianChristians.com. Okay, but faith-seeking yeah. freedom would probably get you there too, right? I, I would think. Yeah, yeah, it's all, yeah, it's all linked together. Great. Um, I think that's a good place uh, 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 to end. I really appreciate uh, each of your time. Carrie, thanks for being on. Thank you. And Dick, thanks for being on. A lot of fun, Aaron. Thanks. And uh, we'll uh, uh, hopefully the next project that uh, LCI is up to um, or, you know, issues come up that would uh, benefit from an LCI perspective, we'll, we'll be back in touch. Great. We're looking forward to it. Okay. Good thanks. to see you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.